The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight. And a special welcome for anybody who's walking in the doors for the first time. I know it's not always... Oops. I know it's not always uh, easy to walk into a new place, so I just want to acknowledge that, and please let us know if you have any questions. So I've been giving some talks recently about, I guess we sometimes we refer to it as one-third of the spiritual life, right? So in the, the way the Buddha talked, the path is made up of three trainings, and really we're using mindful awareness for all three of the trainings. It's what really supports, it's kind of the main ingredient in learning of any kind, but in particular spiritual learning or what we might call insight, right? We use that stable and somewhat continuous, preferably really continuous, but you know, often it's like a little mindfulness and then a little distraction, and then a moment or two of mindfulness, and then it wavers and there's distraction. It's important to say that because a lot of people presume that their mind is the only mind that's broken because they don't get too many continuous moments of mindful awareness. That's why we practice, right? And so we're using that mindfulness awareness to purify three aspects of our life from a more gross to more subtle. So the grossest part of our life, not gross in a negative sense, but gross in a dense, obvious, concrete sense, is what we call our moral lives. That's what I've been talking about the last few weeks. The life of our relationships, how we're interacting, how we're relating, how we're showing up in the different situations in our lives. So we shine the light of awareness on that, And lo and behold, because we're seeing clearly, mindfully aware, not judging, not controlling, but just seeing, right? So it's so cool to actually be able to be interacting with someone and to have that reflective awareness at the same time. Oh, it's like this. I'm subtly manipulating the person like this, or I'm being afraid like this you know, being codependent like this. So whatever the underlying flavor of the interaction, like even now, right? This is a social situation, and you could be listening to the words, and there could be some mindfulness, some reflective awareness. Now, maybe you're a little self-conscious because I'm, right? We're sort of realizing, oh, yeah, i got to... But in any case, whatever it's like for each of us right now, it can be known. Right? It's like this. And then because we can be aware of how it is in the body and the mind right now, then there can be some skillful changes, adaptations or adjustments, so that the way the heart, mind, body is in the moment is, let's say, more frictionless, less resistance, lighter, wiser, kinder. Right? But if we're unaware if there isn't that light of mindful awareness illuminating the present moment, then I could be in a reactive 
place right now, whatever that might look like, like nobody likes me or whatever condition pattern tape we might be running. But if there's no illumination by mindful awareness, then we just are, in a sense, we're always going to do what we've done before. We're going to act out that habit and we're going to get the same results. So mindfulness in this sense, like in the grosser sense of being mindfully aware of our relating to things that we relate to in our daily moments, people, other creatures, maybe situations, even objects like relating to our toothbrush or relating to the car or putting our clothes on. So even really sort of inanimate things we have a relationship with. And we can illuminate that. Like, are we putting our clothes on in a gentle way or in a hurried way? Right? And then if we're mindfully, away, uh, mindfully aware, we'll notice. Oh, it's like this. I'm relating to the clothes. I'm treating the clothes in this way. And then the second part of the training is we bring that stable, somewhat continuous mindful awareness to this more subtle aspect of our mind. You could call it the environment, the ecology of our mind. Like, what are the qualities that are present in the mind and heart right now? Skillful or unskillful? And we're starting to take responsibility like, okay, I'm going to illuminate what's happening in the mind with awareness, mindful awareness, and I'll sense, because of the continuous present moment awareness, I'll sense whether the qualities that are present, like being kind, being aggressive, being judgmental, whether they're a cause for stress or a cause for release, ease. Right. So that's the second part of the training. First is to bring awareness to our relationships. Second is to be bring awareness to the mind. It's not like necessarily in this order. And then the third, the most subtle training is we bring awareness to this other aspect of the mind that's more subtle than the sort of grosser expression of mental qualities, which we sometimes refer to as the underlying view or the understanding or frame out of which I make up meaning about the moment, about who I am, about what's happening, right? Whenever the mind narrates what's happening or tells itself a story, that telling of the story, it's coming out of a particular frame or understanding or view. And like an obvious example from the Buddhist tradition is, almost always, unknowingly, we're telling stories to ourselves from a self-centered point of view. And mostly that goes unquestioned. But we can learn, it's more subtle of course, we can learn to shine a light of awareness on the underlying understanding, underlying view, that is the underlying frame that's there and in in a sense shaping the sort of grosser part of the mind, that middle place the different qualities that are there in the mind, right? Because they come out of the view. Just like how I relate to other people, that also comes out of the view. So if I have a strong self-centered orientation, then my grosser thinking 
and the grosser kind of emotional tone, attitude of my mind, it's really being shaped by that underlying view. And then those two things shape how I'm interacting with other people. Right? So generally speaking, as we pay attention to our life, we learn that subtle generally shapes the gross more than the gross shapes the subtle. But it goes both ways. So if I'm not angry, but if I just, on a gross level, start acting angry, then it will eventually affect the way I'm thinking and will eventually affect how I'm the underlying view. Right? But it's a little harder. But subtle has more power over the gross. So in Buddhism, a lot of our practice is using the gross, like we did in our sit, you know, where we use awareness of the body. Well, the point of Buddhist awareness practice isn't just to be intimate with the body, but if we're really intimate, really present with the body, then that stability and continuity of awareness with the body helps us to see the activity of the mind. Did you notice? You could be completely oblivious to the activity of your mind, but then when you're invited to be aware of your body, all of a sudden what the mind is doing becomes more apparent because it keeps drawing the attention away from the body. So precisely because you said, no, no, I want to be present with the body, and you resolve that, then it's so much easier to notice what the mind is doing and the attitude of the mind, the mood, the different qualities that are there, right? And if you can get to know the mind, then you can get a sense of the underlying view, which is more subtle. So, like I mentioned briefly, it's not necessarily, oh, we start with the gross, then we work with the medium, and then eventually we work with the subtle. It's, we're trying to work on all three levels. And we're just, the Buddha describes these three levels as part of the, that's how he talks about the path, you know, in these three ways. He breaks it down, actually, in a more refined way. So it's usually referred to as the Eightfold Path. Maybe some of you have heard that. It's quite a well-known map. But the Eightfold Path gets divided in these three ways. So we have view or wisdom, which is really the underlying view and the intentions that flow out of view. Like if the, if the view is really wise, not self-centered, then the intentions that will flow out of that would be the intention to let go, to be generous, the intention to be kind, and the intention not to harm. But when our view is self-centered, then the intentions that flow out of a self-centered attitude, it's all about me, are the, in a sense, usually the opposite. So instead of generosity and letting go, it's like, I want, you know, I want to own, I want to have, I want to lock it away so it will be there for me, right? So that's not generosity, that's greed. And instead of kindness, it's this sort of aversive, fearful attitude in the mind, intentions in the mind, coming out of fear and aversion, ill will. And instead of non-harming, we feel justified in causing harm, right? Because we have this orientation, the self-centered orientation that's like either me or you, you know, that's just the nature of the world. It's dog-eat-dog. So we 
don't mind doing things that cause harm because we, that's how we're seeing things. So we have, that's the wisdom part, that's the purification of view. The purification of relationship really gets in the Eightfold Path gets divided as, you know, bringing awareness to our actions, bringing awareness to our speech, and bringing awareness to how we take care of our livelihood, how we basically find a way to survive, right? So earn a living, but it's more than just that because there's any number of ways to take care of our basic needs and how we do that, right, is impactful. That's what we're watching. Can we do that in a harmonious way, in a way that doesn't plant seeds of suffering? And then the mind, that middle part that I was talking about, like looking at the qualities of mind, the three things in the Eightfold Path are wise effort, like to abandon what isn't helpful and to cultivate what is good in terms of mental qualities. So making that effort, seeing the mind and body, being mindful and stabilizing so that continuity of that mindfulness. And the three of them is what purifies the mind. And in Buddhism, we call that samadhi. Samadhi is what purifies the mind, that stability of awareness, that sort of middle part of the mind where the attitude of the mind, the qualities of the mind. And so in terms of sila practice or morality, these last few weeks I've been talking about this third of the path that's about bringing awareness to moral sensitivity. So I'm interacting all the time, even when we're just sitting at home on the couch that's, we're still in relationship with the world, right? It just happens to be a couch in our apartment or home and maybe a cat, but that's a relationship. There's no way, as long as we're embodied, you know, on this planet, in this life, we're in relationship with the conditions in the moment, the external conditions, in relationship with our own mind, right? And so on this real simple, gross level, how we relate, how we're in relationship leaves impressions on our heart, our sensitive heart. It matters. And how do we know it matters? It doesn't matter because someone tells us it matters. It matters because when, we're, when we choose to be sensitive, when we choose to pay attention, we feel directly it matters. You know, if you're home and you kick your cat, and then you take some time to get sensitive, to really honestly want to know what that feels like, you'll know what that feels like. Or if you really treat your cat well, and you give it a good brushing, and you change its litter, and you give it fresh water, and you know, do some nice things for the cat, you'll feel the impression doing those nice things leave in your heart because in the preceding, I mean, in the next moments, that mind or that heart is the heart that did those things in the previous moments, right? So in Buddhist psychology, we think of the mind or the heart in this moment-to-moment way. So there's the heart in this moment or the mind in this moment, 
And then in, in every moment, there's a moment of relating. And that moment of, a re, of relating, however, whether it's skillful or unskillful, it leaves an impression. So then the next moment, of course, of the mind is conditioned by the previous moment. It's a different moment, but it's very much conditioned by the previous moment. So it's a mind that did that thing related in that way in the previous moment. So if we relate it in an unskillful way, then in the next moment, what is born in that next moment is the mind that was unskillful in the previous moment. And that unskillfulness exists in that mind as an impression, as a tendency, as a vibration. I mean, I'm not sure what the right word is, but this mind, each of us, you know, are experiencing right now, that mind is just the continuation of all those previous mind moments. Where else did this mind come, this mind moment, this heart moment, where did it come from if not having been shaped by all those previous mind moments? And whether you believe in past lives or not, you can just set that aside because even within this one life, we see that one moment shapes the next, shapes the next, shapes the next. Now, again, it isn't. It sounds like this is like uh, theory or philosophy, but we can actually observe this if we pay attention, and we can see. Oh, yeah, I did this, and now it lives on in this moment as this feeling, this residue feeling, right now, and. And then it makes us, that sort of vigilance or that clarity, it makes us really more careful, more, more full of care about how I relate right now because I realize I'm going to be the person who does this right now. So who do I want to be in the future? Do I want to be the person that's evil right now or unskillful right now or mean-spirited right now and then have to live with whatever the continuation of that is? Or do I want to become the person you know, that is carrying the reverberation of being kind or being forgiving or being patient or being clear and open-hearted? So each moment we're shaping the future now, there are a lot of things in play that you and I, no one is really controlling. But the one thing we are controlling, in a sense, one thing that we can actively participate in when we get this instruction is this, that it matters how I'm relating right now. It matters. So we can just, again, learn from our own experience. Well, how does it matter? I don't know. And no one's handing us a manual like when you do this, you get that. But we can learn it directly if we have a continuity of present moment awareness to some degree. We can see what we're setting in motion. Oh, this this is who I was today. This is how I related. This is the attitude I lived out of today. And lo and behold, tonight... This is what it feels like to have lived the life I lived today. Or, you know, I'm 61 now, you know, and I see, you know, those grooves in my mind, those habit, habits in my mind, and then I can sense, oh, yeah, these habits 
a lot of these habits, these tendencies, have been shaped by choices made over the years. And I see that both in positive and unskillful ways. Like just in terms of the momentum of my practice, like how my mind can settle down now in a way that it couldn't, you know, 36, 37 years ago before I started meditating. Right? And that's just the cumulative effects of having practice. But other ways I haven't been so skillful, right? Certain unhelpful tendencies maybe have been repeated over the years. Still the groove gets cut deeper, whatever that those grooves are. And so then those tendencies still exist in the mind. Oh yeah. When am I going to get around to uprooting or weakening that tendency? You know, whatever it might be. And this, uh, as I've been saying these last few weeks, it's, it's meant to really enliven us, not to scare us. I mean, this is really, if you don't know, it has a lot to do with the Buddhist teachings on karma. That intention, intentional actions, the way we're relating, it really matters. And we want to get to this place of beautiful balance where... We know that the moment matters, but we're not neurotically trying to fix things, and we're not neurotically trying to escape the sort of um, dynamic that it matters. So we're, we're really finding a way to own the responsibility without making the sense of responsibility heavier than it needs to be. The sense of responsibility needs to be just heavy enough to inspire being aware. But if you're aware and you're still kind of feeling, oh no, I got to do it right, that's too much, right? Then you need to bring in a lot of sense of, well, it's kind of happening on its own. I can relax. It doesn't help to be tight. It doesn't help to be afraid. It just gets in the way of being sensitive. Because we don't need to be afraid of making mistakes, we need to be sensitive, right? So any fear about being unskillful, we just channel that into the effort to be awake, to be sensitive, to be present. Because that's the only thing that helps. Being afraid of making a mistake is in a way just another distraction, another way we keep from being sensitive. And it's only when we're in that place of balance where we know it matters, so that sort of makes the mind alert, how I'm showing up right now is shaping everything that's going to unfold, including for other people. Because we're, you know, supporting and harming other people by our actions too. We're all, unfortunately and fortunately, in the same soup, benefiting each other, and harming each other, just depending on how we're living our lives. And that's just the nature of this existence. So we want to inhabit this messy, complex, restless realm we call human existence from this place of balance, where we're really sensitive. We know it matters, right? And we're not, uh, we're not identified 
with having to do anything, and we're not identified, so we don't have a fixed view that I have to be skillful, I have to become the person who's skillful, and, we don't have, and we're not identifying with the view, I don't care, I give up, this is too complex. Right? So that balanced place of moral sensitivity and skillfulness and nimbly responding to the changing conditions of our lives, it doesn't, that skill doesn't come from having a fixed view or a fixed plan. It comes from being sensitive, really awake, really that kind of compassionate sensitivity, like I don't want to cause harm to myself or others. So I'm not going to get tight because I don't want to cause harm. I'm going to relax into sensitivity because I don't want to cause harm. So the compassion leads to that release into sensitivity instead of the charge, like, oh, I've got to get it right. I mean, we know what that's like when someone comes at us really wanting to be skillful, but they're tight about it. It's like, not so nice to be around those kind of people. I mean, I, I'm that kind of person sometimes, you know, like, like wanting to give a good talk. Well, it doesn't help <laughs> to really want to give a good talk. Or, you know, I'm go- doing a hospital visit. You know, I really want to have something. I really want to support that person who's in a difficult place. Well, it doesn't help. What really helps is to really be sensitive, which often means like knowing what my heart's doing right now. Like maybe I'm afraid. Maybe I need to be intimate with that first and foremost. Oh, I'm anxious. I really want to do it right, and I'm afraid I won't. And that feels like this. Right? So that's what I mean about the growing roots into the moment, willing to inhabit the moment, not be afraid of not knowing, not knowing how to be skillful. Because we're replacing any fixed plan with a lot, a growing confidence that I don't know what I'm doing, specifically in this situation and generally in my life, but I know something about being skillful. Being intimate, being awake and relaxed really helps. I mean, it seems so simple, but that's the key to being in a good, healthy marriage, or raising children, or taking care of a cat, dog, or changing the world for the better, addressing some of these systemic causes for suffering, like sexism or racism. What it needs isn't a fixed plan. What it needs is someone who knows how to keep finding their way back to that place of balance, where they're really not afraid. The thing about balance is it feels good. So then the heart starts to feel more safe in the sense of really trusting it. And then that diminishes the fear. And so the mind is even more clear, more connected, more sensitive to what's actually happening. Seeing the subtle, the more subtle dynamics in the moment that wouldn't otherwise be felt or seen. So that the response then is coming from that more subtle sensitivity of what's going on in my family, in the wider world, you know, whatever we're showing up for in the moment. It really is what allows for profound change. So 
So the, I just want to kind of really clarify that the um, importance of abandoning fixed views. And then now, because we've been talking about the five precepts, generally this whole area of sila, moral conduct, ethical conduct, integrity, or in a more operational sense, it's this deep valuing of non-harming. Not harming ourselves or others, right? So it's not excluding ourselves. It's not just that we care about other people, but we also care about this life equally, right? So this moral sensitivity and the place of mindful awareness and the kind of freedom. So we say like with sila practice, this practice of morality, it's both a path where we're training, developing this sensitivity, mindful awareness, but it's also an expression of the freedom that comes. Because of the mindful awareness, we can navigate all of the moral situations, which is really every moment of our life is a moral, because everything matters, right? We're either going to be setting in motion more harm or less harm every time we shop, every time we talk, right? I mean, it's so easy, like, even in a talk like this, it's so easy to just say something that rubs somebody the wrong way that could have been avoided had I been just a little bit more sensitive. You know, little microaggressions, little acts of unconsciousness, or just even the kind of tone or the example that is used. So it's like, oh yeah, and that there's a lot of freedom and trusting that I'm causing less and less harm. It's like we feel so much better about our life when we're this sensitive. It isn't like a burden to be sensitive. It's a freedom because there's a growing sense that I'm navigating my life, having my relationships without leaving a trail of destruction. You know, we're broken hearts and angry people and people who feel neglected or not seen or whatever it might be. Not that we can do it perfectly. You know, there's nobody who lives their lives without causing some harm. But we can still do it beautifully. Like, because it's the intention and the sensitivity that's really beautiful. You know, people still step on ants because they don't see the ant or they still you know say something and somebody takes it in a way that really is hurtful but that's okay because the sensitivity maybe we'll pick that up oh did that land the wrong way i'm really sorry i didn't mean to or whatever however we might make amends so even the mistakes that we might be making or being less than perfect, the sensitivity picks that up and feeds it right back in to that deepening value of non-harming. Oh, yeah. Oh, there I... Oh, ooh. That feels like that. And, it, and instead of kind of dwelling in a, with guilt, oh, God, I'm so bad, I can't believe I did that, it's sort of that pain of causing harm, you know, because it hurts when we really see that we've caused harm. You know, a squirrel runs across the road. We were sort of paying attention, but we ended up hitting the squirrel, right? 
And then it, you got that yucky feeling. Oh, I did that. Squirrel's dead. And you could just, you know, you could do any number of things that wouldn't help anybody. It's not going to help the squirrel. Or you can take the pain of that remorse for having hit the squirrel and you can channel, right? So it becomes this, this beautiful vigilance. Okay, I'm going to be more awake. I'm going to be more sensitive. I'm going to remember that I'm driving in a world with a lot of creatures. Right? Because how often when we're driving are we aware that there are a lot of creatures? Very, you know, only when the squirrel is already in the road. Then we realize, oh, there's a lot of creatures around here. But they're always around. In the same way, like, how often when we're talking do we realize that our words have impact? Well, when we really hurt somebody, then we're aware. But we could have been aware before we had that painful impact. And then that really affects how we choose words and even how our body language is when we're talking or interacting with someone. So it's sort of like, um, you know, if we move through the world knowing that everything, every glance, every word, every action, and even our thoughts are impactful, right? we get really sensitive. And if we start getting tight about it, then just remember that doesn't help. What really helps is caring, caring about impact. And to really see it as an expression of freedom, like I have the freedom to care about impact, to care about not harming. So whatever you do for your life, with your life, you know, whether you have this passion or this job or this situation in your life or you just really have a lot of body health issues and you're mostly absorbed in taking care of your own body, it doesn't really matter. The question is, can this moral sensitivity be both a path and expression of freedom? Something, a way to make something really beautiful. And I just want to remind us of these five precepts. So the first is undertaking the training to refrain from killing living beings or causing harm to living beings. The second training we undertake is undertaking the training to refrain from taking that which hasn't been given is kind of an interesting question. Was that given to me? You know, the paycheck shows up. Okay, I think it's given to me. It's my paycheck. It's got my name on it. But, but in a more nuanced way, you know, it's like what's fair with the privilege and the wealth and whatever comes our way, what's really freely given, right? Because a lot of the Aspects of our economic systems are a bit or a lot exploitative, right? Taking advantage of people. So was the fact that we got this or got paid that or was able to purchase this for that price, was that really freely given? Well, it's complicated. So this is another place, you know, where can we, are we willing to be sensitive both as a training moving in the direction of freedom, but also an expression of freedom, like I have the privilege, the spiritual privilege to be interested, to be sensitive, because I care. I want to live a life that leaves a good taste, that doesn't cause harm.
in the third training is undertaking the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. So here we are, we have no choice, being born as human beings. Human beings, much more than most other species of animals, we're a highly sexualized species. And, you know, clearly this is expressed in a very diverse, diverse way. But we're all in one way or another you know, we have sexual energy, even when you get in your 60s, I'm finding. <laughs> and then, then how to not cause harm in this world of attraction, right? How to not cause harm. What does that look like? And how to be interested? Because we might think, well, I'm just going to repress it because it's messy, right? Well, clearly, that causes harm, right? In my 20s, I... For a number of years, I didn't date, didn't have sexual relations with others. And, um, you know, it was good. I learned a lot, but it wasn't necessarily healthy. <laughs> I was really into my spiritual practice. I still am, but, you know, I was kind of gung-ho in a more traditional way back then. And um, so it seemed like to simplify, to sort of support some of the things uh, that I understood as my spiritual practice. And I, I don't, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't feel bad about what I did, but it's like, it's too simple to just say, I'm not going to do that. Because, like it or not, that's who we are, right? It's kind of part of this body-mind life that we have. So how to, it's a little bit like so many other things in life that are messy and complicated, So how do we undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct? Manipulating, right, in all the subtle and not so subtle ways that we might do that, as well as the more obvious ways that we might cause harm. And the fourth is undertaking the training to refrain from using our words in ways that cause harm, like not telling the truth, or even using a loud, harsh voice or stealing somebody's time by engaging in idle speech. That doesn't really help anybody. Talking about things because we don't want to feel what we're feeling. So I'll kind of grab Mike's attention and go on and on because I'm afraid of being alone with myself. Right? So there's all, any number of more subtle ways that we cause harm. I mean, the obvious one is slander or gossiping about somebody that in some way causes great harm. But there are a lot of subtle ways that we cause harm with our words. And then the fifth training for lay people in the Buddhist tradition is to undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that cause carelessness. So getting drunk or getting high or whatever, it's not itself morally unskillful, but it sets us up because that moral sensitivity, that beautiful balance that I've been talking about, we're we're not afraid to act, but we're also not afraid to refrain from action. So we're, we're basically ready to do what needs to be done in the moment. We're not identified with like fear of engagement, and we're not identified with having to engage. So that really sets us up. But if we're intoxicated, it really gets in the way of that sensitivity, right? And so it's so much easier 
to say things and do things and even think things that cause harm for ourselves and others. So I want to leave it here. Just uh, like I've mentioned before, it's, there's so much that we have all learned in this arena of action and livelihood and speech. And when there's been sensitivity and when there hasn't been sensitivity, and just sharing now in the next 15 minutes, and I think I mentioned last week, where the etiquette here is to stay through the Q&A. We try to end really close to the 8.30 time. Um, but it's nice to not to leave during the Q&A. It's just uh, respectful for the people who are sharing. So yeah, your own thoughts about what you've been learning about this moral sensitivity and holding the balance and not afraid of action, not afraid of refraining from action, and really learning about what causes harm and what supports healing and releasing and, and the sort of harmony that we can touch in life. Anybody want to begin? Questions that might have come to mind from the talk? Yeah, Laura, remember to point the mic like this. So what about approaching morality from an efficiency standpoint? So much of, I guess, when I see the precept showing up in my life, it's really because of efficiency as much as non-harm. Like I eat the same salad every night for dinner because... It allows me to only buy three ingredients from the grocery store and go to the garden and cut my lettuce. I have started being really honest and upfront in my contracts because the time I waste in the end going through the just solving the problems, what went wrong, why does this cost more, just eats up all my time. Drinking, doing drugs, I know if I do that and I'm going to waste the entire next day not able to do anything. So it's... It is also a non-harm for myself, but I also see morality as just being a very efficient way to live life. Yeah. And the, and the flip side of that, that sounds really wise, Laura. The flip side of that is because there's nothing morally wrong with uh, doing a lot, right? There's nothing inherently uh, causing harm by taking on a lot. But we can't be, it's harder to be sensitive when we're doing too much, have too many duties and responsibilities, care about too many things, and we end up causing harm. I don't know, some of you might remember Thomas Merton. He was a Christian Catholic mystic back in the 60s and got interested in Eastern religions. But uh, he has this great quote that a good friend of mine gave me because I need to hear this, you know, that if you try to do everything in every way, this is just a rough paraphrase, you know, it itself is an act of violence towards yourself and perhaps towards others. So this is clearly a big deal in Buddhism, simplicity. But it's not that simplicity is a training mechanism. Right? We, seclude, we live a more secluded, more simple life because it's easier to really understand what freedom is and what freedom isn't. But the more we get good at that, then maybe you can, you know, have a more complex life. Because that, we shouldn't be attached, because that can be an attachment too. You know, the proverbial um, hermit living in the cave. There's a funny story about somebody who's lived in a cave for 25 years and 
really feels like they've gotten somewhere in their life and you know, comes out of the cave one day and starts walking down toward the town. I've completely gone beyond anger. I am free of anger. I'm all love. And he runs into a little boy or a little kid, and the kid says, really? No anger at all? That's what I said. I have no anger at all. I mean, nothing makes you angry. Scorpions don't make... He says, no, I told you, nothing makes me angry. And you can see where this is going, you know. (laughs) After a few more minutes, the pesky kid has really gotten under the skin of this hermit. And then they realize it. And they start walking back up the hill to the... Well, they probably should have gone to town, right? Because they might learn better how to be free in the complexity of the town than just sitting. But it doesn't mean it wasn't useful to go to the cave for a while, but maybe back and forth or sometime there, sometime here. That's why in some ways the urban Dharma centers especially if you get some time to get out of town in more secluded environments, you know, a couple times a year, but have some support in town, have an hour every day where you have that seclusion, your formal meditation time, you know, but then you have to go out and earn a living or then you're raising your children or, you know, whatever. Yeah, thanks, Laura, for getting us going. With the, yeah, please, you want to pass it behind? Second row. Um, I have a bit of a cold, so I'm going to hold it back and try and speak with as much clarity as I can. Um, But I just wanted to say this really resonated for me. Uh, The past four days, I I was in Denver for a bachelorette party. Um, So I spent some time uh, surrounded by people and myself being a little bit unskillful. Um, And... Um, it was an experience that was, it was new to me. I'd never been on one of these trips before and it really kind of checked the boxes of all the, you know, stereotypes of what a, an event like that entails. And, um, I, I got sick the second day, so it was just, it was a lot. Um, and I found myself very quickly becoming very judgmental and, um, frustrated and especially because it, uh, not in addition to being sick, it felt like, um, you know, none of this really aligned with my values. And the marriage industrial complex was very present. And, um, I, and, um, and so I was, you know, very, I'm sure at times, obviously, not being skillful and judgmental of someone I care about and people I care about. And, and here I am today sitting and thinking back and thinking, man, if I had just been a little bit more aware and sensitive. Um, I feel a little better today, even though um, so much of this experience just did not fit with who I am as a person. And so I'm just curious, um, and maybe this resonates for others too, but in moments where you feel so faced with just frustration, particularly involving um, things that don't uh, align with your own values, um, how to, how to be sensitive. <laughs> yeah. So it was hard. Yeah. And it's really important, to, you know, in our social groups because <laughs> we have a loyalty, as we should, with our old friends. And, uh, and as, our, as our practice continues and our values naturally begin to shift, the love may be even stronger than it's ever been, but the disconnect between their values and our values might be increasing. 
And we, we just have to be really honest with ourselves. And in a way that feels appropriate with them, we have to be honest with them as well. And the key is not to be, uh, not to be dismissive of the change so that we're, we're ready when the invitation comes and we're ready to negotiate who I get to be when I go or whether I should go, right? So that we're not caught off guard because one of the things that we learn when we become more mindful is that we share, we're on the same soup and who we are is really a function of the environment we're in. So then the way we take care of ourselves is we avoid some environments that we know we can't be skillful in. It's, and we're not condemning the environment. All we're knowing is when I'm in that environment, what qualities in, in my actions and qualities in my mind and views, those three aspects, I don't trust those anymore. I don't want those to be watered or reinforced anymore. And I don't have the skill, I don't have the wisdom to be in that situation and be skillful. It's a little bit what I was saying in response to Laura's comments. You know, so I choose to live in this very simple and efficient and secluded way you know, where I just buy these things and I just make these choices. But I aspire maybe to sometimes go there and not be spun around by it and not be afraid to be who I am there and to be who I am without judging anybody else in the choices they're making. But if they feel uncomfortable, that's their business. I'm not trying to make them uncomfortable. I'm just being real, who I am. And, uh, but that's not so easy, and we need to be really respectful about how hard it is to be in those environments. It's interesting. I've, I, I've done a lot of weddings. I can you know, sign the marriage license. And... Uh, and it's always, I always have to be careful about saying yes, like, especially if it's not happening here at Common Ground, because I end up in situations that I don't feel comfortable, you know, and it's, you know, it's like you said, the whole thing, I don't know what I'm getting into when I agree to have a conversation with people. And so I have to be, now I've learned, I have to be really clear what I can do, what I'm interested in doing, how to find other people to do what they might want. To do, and that I don't have to do everything, you know. And it breaks my heart a little because um, a lot of my, I come from a really big family and there's always stuff going on and I don't do a lot of it. And it's really affected in some ways my relationships with my family. I mean, I think they understand, oh, Mark's different. <laughs> <laughs> and I think they love me and I don't feel judged by them at all. But, but I, I do miss not being with them, but I'm just not enlightened enough to be there without not liking who I am or what gets set in motion when I'm there. So some things I avoid, some things I do my best, right? And some things I can really thrive in, right? So it's not like I have to miss everything. But I make, I make difficult choices to not go on this trip, to not do this thing. Yeah, thanks for sharing with us. We have time for one more person. Yeah, Mike, do you want to go next? Oh, maybe if we go quick, yeah, we can go here and then to Mike. Mike gets the last word. So uh, in the back here, in the back corner. 
just pass it along. People will pass it. Uh, where do judgments come from, and what purpose do they serve? Well, habits, habits, like everything, like the Buddha reminds us and encourages us to see everything as a conditional arising. So a judging mind arises because of past causes, right? So something, in a sense, got set in motion, and that makes it more likely to happen again. And then when it happens again, it makes it even more likely and eventually becomes a habit. And then it becomes somebody's character to be judging because it got built up. And there wasn't a built-in feedback mechanism that awareness, wisdom and awareness can provide that excuse me, reveals how stressful it is to be a judging person. So if that feedback, if that mindful awareness isn't there, then these tendencies can become part of one's character. Right? So what we need to bring in is that reflective mechanism. That's what wisdom awareness does, mindful awareness does. We notice what it feels like when the mind is judging. We notice it's stressful. Oh, yeah, I don't like this. Yeah, thanks for that. Thank you. Yeah, you want to pass it over to Mike? And we'll end with Michael's comments. Yeah, so without going into great detail, I was just going to share that um, how useful it is to have mindfulness around like unskillful, um, uh, you know, the unskillful relating to circumstances because that really is where all the learning comes from. And, you know, it's just like there can be a lot of kind of environmental things happening in your life that, that, bring up these unskillful responses and then like, like for a traffic jam yeah exactly and for instance like right now i feel like i'm i'm a kind of a level place in my life and now it's just like really beautiful to be like wow there's this choice about when aversion comes up to be like it's like a fork in the road you know it's like i don't need to go down that path so yeah, it's yeah. very, it's beautiful. It's like we want those fruits, you know, all the time, but sometimes you just have to see the aversion, so. Now, if we could just really hear what Mike said, because that is so true, to be grateful, to because normally, like, uh, I was at a meeting earlier today, and uh, Cecilia, one of our teachers here, just drove down from Duluth for the meeting, and it, it took her five hours, you know, it's two and a half hours at the most when there's no traffic, but there's work on 35, and I forget there were a few other things going on. Anyways, but she came in. She was just laughing. Ah, five hours. <laughs> right? <And> it's like, <laughs> because she was probably like being aware. Oh, I'm going to be late for this important gathering, you know? And noticing like how the mind wanted to get really tight and just seeing how absurd it, like how could that help? You know, it's like, Poking myself with needles. Oh, there's traffic. Here, I'll poke myself with needles. (laughs) We wouldn't do that. But unconsciously, that's exactly what we do. We kind of crunch when bad circumstances, instead of, as Mike is suggesting, whoa, this is interesting. I want to poke myself with needles. (laughs) Some of you know that that's a famous teaching, that uh, shooting the second arrow or shooting the second dart from the Buddha. So it's, It's actually a literal thing that we do. Anyway, we need to leave it here. It's 8.30. Just take a moment. Let go of the words. 
just enough time to take a couple breaths together and enjoy a few moments of silence. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.